Hear the word of God from Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. So good to be with you all this morning. Uh, So good to worship with all of you. Even though some of you guys are in different places, it's still so good to know that the Spirit is knitting our hearts together. I don't care if you're in a living room and uh, right down the street from us or if you're in another state, there's something supernatural that the Spirit is able to do. He unites us together as one body in this church. And we thank God for that. I love the fact that that's our reality. We're diving into the book of Romans and hope you enjoyed our time in the book of Romans so far because um, I'm going to be honest with you, you guys might not like today's topic. You might not like today's sermon at first. What? Did he just say that? Yes. Today's text deals with a topic that is very difficult to deal with. We're talking about death today. Mine, yours, ours, all of ours. It's a dreaded topic that we don't want to think about. We often spend billions of dollars trying to avoid but it's real, and it happens. Death in Texas, right? It's, it's inevitable. And I'm going to be honest with all of you guys. I've been thinking more and more on this topic lately. I don't know if I, as I'm getting older, as I see my kids getting older, I've been really kept up at night thinking more about death like I've never done before. It's just a weird thing for me. I remember as a kid, I, I struggled with death, not in a way some people, like, not in the sense of fearing death, but kind of like this idea of eternity or oblivion both freaked me out, right? This idea, when I thought about death, I thought about either uh, it all ending, nothing there, that completely, it's like weird to me, or eternity is also very weird to me. Death is such a difficult topic. I worry about it now more now, not so much philosophically, but now more, I have little kids. I don't want to leave them. Death is scary because it's unknown. There was this interview in the New York Times with Larry King, and Larry King spoke about his latest his fixation with death. And in the course of the interview, for all his weird eccentricities, he, he voiced a feeling that I think rather suspect is really common to all of us. He said this. He said, I can't get my head around one minute being there and another minute not. 
Because I can't wrap my head around it. I can't wrap my head around this idea of being alive and the next day not being alive. The reality of death, one minute you're here, one minute you're not. And he says he can't get his head around that. That was his response. And making sense of death is a struggle that many of us, all of us one day will have to face. Later on when he was asked by CNN anchor Leon Harris about his own kind of death, uh, his own death one day happening, King, is, he's, he said that he's going to avoid death altogether. Larry King said, here's what's going to happen. He, he said he takes four human growth hormones and pills every day. But in case of death, he says, even if I still die, he says he's going to arrange to have his body frozen and then thawed out and researchers develop a cure for whatever killed him. The whole cryogenics approach here. And King Laird told his interviewer that he thinks, even though he thinks the idea is nuts, and the idea behind the people behind the idea is nuts, he still says he's going to do this anyway because at least he has a shred of hope. At least he has a shred of hope with cryogenics. He says other people, King said, have no hope. How sad is that? He says other people hold no hope. So he holds to the slim hope that one day freezing his body will give him a hope that one day he'll exist. That he won't just melt away to oblivion. He doesn't want to be buried. He wants to be frozen. And it's creepy and it's weird. But let's not be too hard on this man because the truth is most people, we all struggle to face death and make sense of life in light of death, don't we? The inevitability of it, the unwanted intrusion of death of people we love, punctuating our lives with sorrow. It all makes death and dying an inescapable fact from which we cannot hide. There's an inevitability about it. So our question really needs to be, where can hope be found in death when death waits for us all? Where can hope be found when death waits for us all? Larry King, for his part, thinks he's found hope. He thinks he's found his hope in cryogenics, human growth, human growth hormones, where he says other people have no hope. So that's the question to you is, is that true? Is he right? Where is our hope from? What hope do we have? So with that said, let me direct you to the scripture that was just read. Your attention to this chapter in Romans that Paul spoke about, this very idea that there we do have a very substantial and very real hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And I want you to see three things in this passage. First of all, I want you to see the reach of death. I want you to see that everybody dies, and the Bible faces that fact and wants us to face that fact squarely. Two, I want you to see that there's a reason for death. We need more than scientific facts about the process of dying. We need existential answers. We want to know why. Why death? Three, there's a removal of death. Is death the final period at the end of our long sentence of life? According to the Apostle Paul in our passage, there is no period at the, at the end of our sentence for those who believe in Jesus. So I want you to understand that we are, our outline today is going to be the reach of death, the reason for death, and the removal of death. Three R's, alliteration, yes. Every seminary professor I've had is very happy with that right now. So the reach of death. If you look at this passage, who dies according to Paul? Verse 12, death came to all. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 15, many died. Verse 17, death reigned. So who dies? Everyone dies. Paul says death reigned. It's a dreadful, terrible dictator. A tyrant holds absolute sway. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's a tragic, wounding event, but nevertheless, it's certain. In some ways, that may seem to us a terrible, obvious point to make. I mean, you're sitting here like saying, duh, Lawrence, we all know that everybody dies. 
Especially as a people over this past year of this pandemic, during this pandemic, we've had to come face to face with how many people dying because of this pandemic during this year. We've had to see it done in heartbreaking ways. One of my best friends, one of my good friends, his mother just passed away two days ago from COVID. People we love deeply have been taken from us and often, especially in this past year, we've seen so many more than usual of this happening. And so maybe we want to cry with more frustration. Of course, Lawrence, we know death is universal. We know it's inevitable. Why even make that a point? That seems silly. I think it needs to be said for this reason. That we live in a culture that's haunted by the constant attempt to evade death, don't we? Perhaps maybe our grandparents or great-grandparents, death was more familiar presence. When, when people were dying at a younger age, when they were dying in higher numbers, when we, when we saw mass, especially in America, we saw more massive world wars that killed a lot of people. But for our generation, our kind of heavily medicalized, increasingly youth-centered society, growing old and dying are kind of intrusions into the way we think things ought to be. We often adopt two different methods when it comes to death. We go, we, one method is we go the route of the ostrich. You guys know what I mean by that, anybody? The route of the ostrich, that's right. Good job. We like to stick our hand, head in the sand, right? We like to stick our head in the sand and say, oh, not gonna see anything, there's no problems here. Uh, don't, don't hurt me, if I don't think about it, maybe it won't be real. So we choose never to acknowledge death or even think about it. Never for our parents or, or for our children. We don't wanna think about it for our children or for ourselves. We just wanna stick our head in the sand and say, maybe if I don't think about it, it doesn't exist or I won't be sad. It's like throwing a blanket over ourselves. Do you guys know what I mean by that when I say throwing a blanket over ourselves? When I was a kid, when I, if I got scared, I'd be like, ooh, just give me under the blanket, I'm good. Right? As if a thin layer of sheet or a thin layer of cloth would protect me from any monster that existed out there. But that's what I did, man. I'm like, ooh, I'm scared. Blanket. Ooh, I'm comfortable now. This idea of being covered, I have to think about it, not seeing the, the scary thing that was out there, maybe not seeing the shadows that are out there. My people, we can't be like those who choose to stick our heads in the sand because death is real, it is inevitable, and it reaches all of us. And the other way of thinking is, the Larry King way, we will conquer death. There's an article in the Washington Post entitled The Human Upgrade. And it reported that a gathering of biologists, computer scientists, researchers, uh, funded by Silicon Valley tech billionaires, kept returning to one subject. And the subject was, was death an inevitability or a solvable problem? They were driven, the article says, by certitude that rebuilding, re-engineering, regenerating, reprogramming patients, organs, limbs, cells, and DNA will enable people to live longer and better. The work they are funding includes hunting for the secrets of living organisms with insanely long lives, engineering microscopic nanobots that fix your body from the inside out, figuring out how to reprogram your D the DNA you were born with, and exploring ways to digitize your brain based on the theory that your mind can live long after your body expires. So you can go the other route. You can say, we will overcome death. We will defeat it by science and medicine. The truth is, we are a death-haunted society. Sure, we deny death, we reject death, we sanitize death, we even desensitize it by putting it on all our TVs and movies and our video games and our entertainment. But no matter how hard we try, whatever Silicon Valley tech billionaires come up with, the harder they try to deny it and negate it, the more it robs us of our ability to make sense of our world and it seems to shake us to the foundation when it happens. See, here's what happens, guys, is the more we try to stick our heads in the sand or the more we try to just defeat it, it rocks us and shakes us to the core when it inevitably hits us. 
So that person whom you love and cared so deeply for dies. You're shaken because you're not willing to face the reality, the inevitability of death. And this is what I want us to really get at what Paul is saying here. This is why I have to say the reach of death. This is why I'm beginning with this point that seems so inevitable. It's because I want you to wake up and say, hey, don't be shaking to the core when it happens because it will happen. It's inevitable. We need to embrace Paul's insistence on the universality of death and especially facing the inevitability of our own mortality. And it's so important. And I'm not saying you need to just merely kind of consent to the idea, oh, well, duh, I'm going to die. I'm not saying just, well, yeah, I know I'm going to die. No, I want us to face the fact that you're going to die, that you, are going to die. you cannot avoid it, you cannot escape it. And how you view death affects how you live life. You have to face it. You must, you must get ready for it. Let me say that again. How you view death affects how you live life. So the reach of death is universal, it is inescapable, it is inevitable. How do you view it? Number two, the reason for death. And before we begin to think about how to do that, there's this idea that we have to affect the, the, the reach of death is here. Then secondly, what's the reason for death? And I submit the reason for death is, 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 is uncomfortable. It's just, it's just, it's, it, oh, we have an inability to kind of grab our, grasp our mind about why do we have to die? Why death? And of course, we can offer medical reasons for like a particular instance of dying. The, the heart stopped, uh, the neurons stopped firing. That's, but that's not really what we're asking, though, is it? We have an instinct, don't we, that death ought not to be. There's something about us, death while universal, inevitable, feels wrong. And it shouldn't happen. And when Jesus stood at the graveside of his friend Lazarus in John 11, we're told that he was deeply moved. He was, he was greatly troubled. And honestly, that's a weak translation. The, the, the Greek here is much stronger. It's, it's more like he was agitated. He was, he was upset. He was almost angry. And he's not angry at the mourners grieving over the loss of a loved one. The text goes on to say that Jesus wept in compassion for them. And a little later in the story, his frustration is aroused because he's surrounded by unbelief. People mock him as he declares his purpose to intervene. But that's not what's happening here. In verse 33, he simply arrives at the tomb. He takes in the scene. There's mourners. And he stands at the graveside of one whom he loved. And he's angry. He's frustrated. He's indignant. But what's going on? Jesus is angry at death itself. He's the Lord who has made all things, and death is an intruder that he has come to overthrow and undo. And here it is in his ugliness and heart confronting him, and he knows death ought not to be, and he knows that he has come to undo it. And don't we have that exact same emotion when, when we see someone whom we love taken away from us? It shouldn't be this way. This is not the way it's meant to be. Death is an intruder here. It's the opposite of what needs to be. So we want to know why death intrudes into the world the way that it does, into our lives the way that it does. And what's the reason for death that the scripture gives us? If you look at the passage, Paul says in verse 12, sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to all people, because all sinned. Do you see that? Do you see the part of the answer right there in the question? Why death? We die because of sin. 
Paul says death came through sin. There's a fundamental link between sin and death. We die because we are sinners. Paul makes that point over and over in the verse that follows, doesn't he? Verse 15, many died by the trespasses of one man. Verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. We die because of sin. And here's the message now. Here's the takeaway. The inescapable universal problem of death should remind us of the deeper inescapable problem of sin. You die because you're a sinner. Our death problem rests on our sin problem. And we will never resolve the former until we deal with the latter. But I also want to be so careful as soon as I say something like that. Because Paul does not mean that death is simply the result of bad behavior. Do you hear that? But that's not something that we think about with sin. That's not kind of how we often think about it. We think sin just means bad behavior, misconduct. And so to deal with the bad behavior, you deal with sin. But that's not how Paul thinks about sin here at all. Sin is much more fundamental, much more profound problem that can be addressed merely by behavior modification. For Paul, guys, get this, the roots of sin lie not in, not in us, but in our first parents, in Adam. He says, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned, so all died because Adam sinned and therefore died. There is a connection, a solidarity. Adam is, not act, is acting not only for himself, but for all his posterity. All mankind descended from him and, um, and, him and sinned with him and fell with him in his first transgression. That's a connection between us and Adam. And that's what Paul's stating here. Now, how does that work? Well, it's important that we understand that Paul is saying much more than we simply inherited uh, a propensity to sin from Adam. That's true, but there's so much more than that. Sin is not a recessive gene like, like red hair or blue eyes or the ability to roll your tongue, which I cannot do, by the way, for the life of me. can't roll my tongue. I can't whistle either, but I don't know if that has to do with anything. But sin is more than a kind of spiritual DNA sequence that causes and breeds in us to the characteristic of sinfulness. That's true as far as it goes, but Paul saying it's more than that. In verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. In Adam's sin, every one of us was constituted as guilty and sinful. We were designated and defined as automatically being enemy of God. That is a terrible fate which Adam's first sin has plunged the world into. His sin is our sin. His guilt is our guilt. There is a solidarity with Adam. Now, raise your hand if you're one like me who is like, wait a minute. How is that fair? Not all of you? Okay, all right. Some of you guys are like, I'll take it. Because I want to say, I think that way. I'm like, wait a minute. How is that fair? Just because Adam messed up doesn't mean I messed up, right? I, would, would I have made the same decision? I don't know. But I didn't get the opportunity, Right? Right? So I'm like, Adam's an idiot. Can I like, go to heaven one day and be like, dude, seriously? You know, kind of punch him in the face and be like, why, Adam? Right? Just because he missed it. Why is that my mistake? Why does he represent all of us? And it's a difficult question, honestly. Some would say that Adam represent, represents us because his decision would have been the one every one of us makes. As a matter of fact, don't we ratify that decision all the time in our lives? Hasn't that been a point in your life where you adopted Adam's lines? Isn't that what Romans 1 even talks about? is that we, left to our own devices, we're making Adam's decision over and over again, right? We worship things made, but not by the one who made them. We worship ourselves. You say what Adam did in the garden, you start thinking, I know better than God. How many times have you done that, thought that way? Well, I'd rather do what I want to do than what God wants me to do. How many times have you known what is the right thing to do and done the opposite? 
I think all those things are implied in that phrase at the end of verse 12 because all have sinned. This means that all have sinned in Adam because God regarded him as a representative. But secondly, we've also ratified his choice then. But every sin that we've committed, we ratify and prove over and over again that yes, he is our representative and that his sin is our sin. And we make that choice every day in our lives. And so we're condemned with the guilt of Adam's sin. Verse 13, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. And the way God executes his judgment, his condemnation, is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Anybody? Death. And so because we are guilty in the sight of God with the guilt of Adam's sin, as verse 15 puts it, we all died by the trespass of one man. So we all die through one man's trespass. All this to say that death's reach is universal because sin's guilt is universal, which means that death is much more of a problem than you and I first realized. It's a reminder from God of our accountability before him. It's a reminder from God of our standing before a righteous and pure and holy and beautiful judge. We die because of sin and we will stand before him to answer for our sin. And if we are to deal with death, we must deal with sin. If we're to find hope that transcends death, we need an antidote that undoes sin. But guys, sin, remember, isn't merely a work of behavior. If that's all it is, and we can deal with it with some hard work, a bit of, you know, go do it, attitude, elbow grease, good incentive. But a mere change of behavior will just, will just not do since the roots of our sin don't lie in us, they lie in Adam. They're out of our reach. However, will we deal with sin now? We're, there's only one hope. How would to deal with sin comes with something that, that, nothing that we can control. So which brings us to our last point, the removal of death. Death's reach, death's reasons, death's removal. And you saw how often Paul repeats himself over and over in these verses. Did you see how each time he repeats the message about Adam's sin and its universal consequences, he also sets up a contrast Every single time between Adam's disobedience and its consequences and another man's obedience and its consequences. Let's look at passage, uh, verse 15. Look, listen for the contrast. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You guys with me so far? Verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed once and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through their one man, Jesus Christ? See that contrast again and again. Where Adam sinned and died, we sinned in him, and his judgment became ours. He was our representative. He was our one that we, his choice is the one that we ratify every day with our lives. But here's the good news. Here's, no, no, I'm not going to say the good Here's the phenomenal, great, ridiculous news. That Jesus Christ has acted also as the public figure, as our representative figure, as our champion. And his obedience, his whole life obedience, culminating in the obedience to a death, even death on the cross. His obedience, Paul says, secures righteousness, not for himself, but for unrighteous sinners like me and you. And it gives us a new genetic coding, a new makeup, a new standing, a new reality, a new position. 
Christ has obeyed and bled and he died and is risen. Death couldn't hold him because sin had no hold on him. And because he lives, Paul is saying we can live too. Because he obeyed, we can be counted righteous in the sight of God. And most astonishing of all, guys, I want you to see this running refrain throughout this passage, is how Paul characterizes the righteousness that the obedience of Christ has won for sinners. He calls it a gift. Over and over again, he calls it the gift, a gift given to sinners. Where is hope to be found in the face of death? Not in pretending that you'll live forever, which is kind of the common sin of youth, forgetting that death even exists. You put your head like an ostrich in the sand. Not in escapism, not in medical advances, certainly not in the sci-fi hopes of, of Larry King and tech billionaires. But the hope, the only hope available to you in the face of death is found in the free pardon of your sin, in the, the redeeming power of Christ, in the loving relationship and the free gift that you have been given through the work of Jesus and work of a covenant sovereign God who chose you before all of creation, who knows you and has called you into a relationship of eternity with him. If you want hope for life and hope for death and hope for after death, you can put your hope to the only one who has broken the bonds of death and brought life and immortality to light. You need to put your hope on Jesus. Because I want you to understand this, that the only one in the history of the world who has broken the bonds of death, who literally said, death, you will hold no eternal sway with me. Lazarus, even though he came back to life, he still ended up dying. And even though there were a couple people who were taken away in life, Enoch and, and Elijah, they were taken away. The only one who actually died and said, death, you cannot hold me. You have no power over me. And he reigns forever is Jesus. He is the one that conquered death by his life of perfect obedience, by being the second Adam, the representative that we truly needed to do what was, was truly called for him to do. And so that our confidence comes from the one who's conquered and defeated death. The day at Lazarus' graveside, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Paul's message to you. Jesus came to undo death. He did it by defeating death. He obeyed. He died himself and he rose a righteous savior for unrighteous sinners. And, you're all, and you to take hold of it as a free gift merely by trusting him. Guys, I want you to understand this. When Jesus came to this earth, and I've said this before numerous times, when he came to this earth, he performed all these incredible miracles to show who he was. But what he didn't do is do these like crazy miracles like, like, like for me, if I was going to show people the purpose of my miracles was to show them how powerful I am, it'd be totally different types of miracles than I would have done than Jesus did. Right? I wouldn't have healed blind people or made people couldn't walk, walk. I would have been like blowing up buildings and I would have had like dragons flying out of my hands and I would have had like, you know, like cool, like cra- I would have like in the sky, big letters. I don't know what I would do, just something crazy and elaborate. But what Jesus did instead was he healed the sick. He brought, he put the, he brought someone back to life. What he was doing, guys, get this, I want you to understand this, is he's renewing creation and what went wrong with the fall was sin, he was making right. And that's what he did with his life. He conquered death, the intrusion, what came from the fall, what came from sin. He conquered. And so for you and for me, death has no power over us. 
death has no ability. So even if we don't know, even there's questions, even there's so much unknown in death, we have confidence that the one who conquered has us in his hands. So death is nothing to him. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know, maybe you're here and you're watching this for the first time. Maybe you're, you're, you wanted to come to church today but somebody told you, oh, we're not meeting so, but you can check us out online. Maybe that's you. And I'm glad you're here. But if you listen to this, maybe, maybe you're listening to this and you think, you know, I, I live in fear of death. I want to know what it's like to have confidence in it. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you're asking, well, yes, I want to accept this free gift. I'm not exactly sure how to do that. And I'd love it if you guys would, you know, explore this message further. If you want to understand this, you're welcome to email any of us, any of the pastors, call us anytime. We'd love to talk to you. But this idea is, I want you to understand this, this gift is given to you. It's presented by the form of, of the way Jesus lived his life. His, his, his gift is presented and the people that he's called to, us Christians who have accepted this gift, we're the ones called to present this gift to others. And so if you're receiving this gift today, if you're here today hearing this for the first time or it's making sense to you for the first time because you want to know what it means to have confidence in death, then I implore you to choose to believe in the one who conquered it and who's called you into an incredible relationship with him so that when death, you can literally shout out, death, where is your sting? For those of you also in this room or listening to this online, wherever you're at, all you, my fellow waypointers who, who fear, who struggle with death or the inevitability of it, guys, can I tell you something? I'm not saying by, by listening to this sermon, all of a sudden you're going to be like, woo, death is awesome. No, death is the enemy. Death is an intruder. But I want you to understand, but also our result, for those of us who follow, death is not the end. It is not the period. Your confidence is the fact that Jesus conquered death. And you don't have to live in fear. And that by us gathering together, this is what I said to the, 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 the team as we were before leading worship this morning. I said one of the things that would benefit of us in our Sunday morning gatherings is that when we gather together, we can remind ourselves of a risen Savior. And every Sunday morning when everything else says we live for this life now, we're saying no. As we gather together to worship and hear the word and to sing praise and worship, what we're reminding ourselves is that death is not our enemy any longer because he's already been conquered. Death is just a reality that leads us to something bigger and better. That's the confidence that we can walk in. He's asking you to trust him that he rescued you from sin and death and judgment. He is your only hope in life and in death that you belong to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you cast your hope on him and he lives. He has triumphed over the grave and everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. My people, can I tell you something? As, as a father... I have two little boys. And when I think of the idea of death and leaving those two little boys, if anything ever happened to me or if my wife or my family, I mourn because death is an enemy. But my confidence has to be. And the only way that I think I can sleep at night has to be that no matter what happens in my life, I have a faithful, good God who has conquered sin and death. And so that the reality for my children and the reality for me and the reality for those who know Jesus, for my fellow brothers and sisters, is that you're known and you're loved and you're called to eternal significance and purpose. May you be reminded of that today. 
There's the reach of death. There's a reason for death. But there's the removal of death. Let's pray. God, may we live in such a manner, God, that we know what death is and we know that it is not the end for us. May we not fear, no longer fear death, but instead may we live for Christ. God, we thank you. We thank you for the second Adam. We thank you for the one who came, who was the contrast to the one who brought sin and the fall to this world, who we ratified by our sins of, that we commit, the one who, who instead lived the perfect sinless life, who, who died upon the cross and conquered death so that our reality now is no longer that we ratify the decisions of Adam. We now live in the freedom of the one who came after, the one Adam was a type for, but the one who completely did what was called, that he was called to do. May we now live for him and in the confidence that he has given us in death. God, may we no longer fear death. Because you've done all that it is to conquer death. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And may we now share this gift with those who don't know. Those who are fearing death. Those who, like Larry King, hold a sliver of hope. Those who have no hope. May they hear the hope there is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.